history on the shelf like accusing fingers. You haven't read me, have you? You haven't read me, have you? So I don't, I don't buy anyone to be here anymore. It's just too depressing. But uh, so I will share with you some ideas that I have found. But uh, you could spend a lifetime just studying Nagar and you would not waste any time. So I don't pretend to have not exhausted it, but any idea that I tell you is only part of the surface and uh, it has uh, endless depth. My ideas that I will share with you reflect my um, so my predilections, my, my orientation. Partly philosophical and partly in terms of those parts of Jewish mysticism with which I'm familiar. But as I say, there's no end to the Okay. Um, we'll start on page 19. <coughs> the process of the Seder is divided into 15 steps. So are there... 15 psalms entitled Shir Hamalos, a poem of steps. So are there 15 steps in the temple from the lowest level to the highest level. So 15 is clearly a number that's associated with ascending levels. I you'll tell me steps go both up and down, but the word term Hebrew Shir Hamalos. Maalos means something that goes up. You can't go down, but that's not the definition of the concept. So for many people, the first thing you do with the Seder is you recite this list. It's a capsule form, it's a summary of all the steps you're going to take in the Seder. Maybe even the song that sung to Now, um, the English doesn't reflect it, but in grammar, one out of the feet is different from all of the rest. <coughs> okay, only 14 are candidates for this grammatical shift, and one out of the 14 is different from all the rest. Which one is different from all the rest? He got it right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we learned this morning that the one that stands out is Carpas, but... It stands on its head, painted blue, but it's not grammatically different. Okay, tell them. Which one is different? Why is it different? Oh, no. I don't really know. Oh! You're cheating! You guessed right! No, I, mean, I, I, I don't know. But Tell me strictly what does Urachat mean? Wash. No! And wash. And wash. Ooh, oh, yeah. And wash. 
It's the only one with an end. It's the only one with an end. Very strange. Number two has an end, and then all the rest of them, the next 13, don't have ends. Right? What must you say? That the first two are joined. The first two are joined. To teach something or other, the first two are joined. The others are just steps. Okay? Now let's see. Kadesh, sanctify. Make something holy. Urchat and wash. What does washing do? In the simplest sense. Clean. Clean. It washes something off. It could be dirt. It could be tuma. Tuma say a dime. I'm saying that for the tape. For the digital recorder. Excuse me. Tapes out of, out of, out of time. Uh, out of date. So you have here a positive and the removal of a negative. Kadesh is to elevate and sanctify. Orchatz is to wash off something. Something that has to be removed. This raises a fundamental question. How do we make progress? How do we grow? Do we start by ridding ourselves of the negative and then growing into the positive? Or do we start by trying to do the positive even though we are as yet imperfect, as yet compromised by negative elements, start with doing the positive and then come to remove the negative. Seems to me, on one level, the message here is Kadesh first and Urchat second. Sanctify, elevate, make holy, and then use that context of holiness to wash, to remove that which is negative. I have other proofs to it. In Shmona Esrei, that's nice. We say in the fifth blessing, bring us back, our Father, to your Torah. Bring us close, our King, to your service. And return us in repentance. Complete repentance before you. Bring us back to your Torah. Bring us close to your service. That's the positive. I'm returning to the Torah. I'm doing God's service. Only then do we ask that God should enable us to do full repentance, which means to rid ourselves of past failures. I think that the Haggadah here is reflecting the same concept. Ah, but the knowledgeable ones will object that there's a famous verse in Psalms which seems to say the opposite. What did the verse in Psalms say? Sur Sur Turn aside from evil and do good. There it puts turning aside from evil first and doing good second. Okay. At the worst, what you could say is that there must be two different views because the Haggadah and the Tefillah are not to be ignored. But you can answer up the verse as well. Who says the verse is talking about stages one and two? 
Maybe the verse is talking about stages two and three. And here's how it goes. First, which the verse is not talking about, do good. Yes, the good will be imperfect. Because you as a person still have those imperfections in you, those negative elements. When you perform an action, you perform the action with all of you. You are a single whole agent. So you perform it with all of you. And therefore, the good that you are performing is imperfect. But it's a good. On balance, it's a good. Then you use the strength that you get from doing the good to turn aside from evil. That's stage two in your process. And it's the beginning of the verse. Once you turn aside from evil, you can then come to stage three, which is doing a perfect good, because now you've rid yourself of the evil. And the verse is describing stages two and three. The verse is answering the question, how can you come to do a perfect good? Answer, only by turning away from evil. Your good will not be perfect unless you start by turning away from evil. I shouldn't say start. Sorry, let me say it again. Your good will not be a perfect good unless you have turned away from evil prior to doing the good. But it doesn't tell you how to start to make progress. So you can imagine the three-stage process or a two-end plus one-stage process or any one or any end. Right? Whereas the Haggadah and the Tefillah are telling you how to start. And you start from where you are to do something good. Question? Yeah, what's, I mean, what, is a, what is stage number one? Stage number one is to do a good thing even though have you have negative things with you and you're carrying it along with you and you're not, you're not eradicating the negative. Uh, Hasidim have a famous parable for this. A man bought a pair of new boots. Now, in Europe that meant once every 10 or 15 years. You change every six months when new styles came out. Yeah. It was a spring day. He polished the boots. He shined them and he went out for a walk. And he was so happy. He wasn't looking where he was going. looking at the sky and the trees and the birds. Suddenly he looks down and he's in the middle of a muddy field. Brand new boots in the middle of a muddy field. What to do? Uh, he has a walking stick. He picks up one foot. Raises the, the boot out of the mud. Uses his walking stick to scrape off the mud. Of course, that's one boot. Over the other boot. So he puts the first boot back down into the mud, picks up the other one. This is not going to work, right? No. So he figures out, as long as I'm in the middle of a muddy field, I'm not going to be able to clean the boots. So what does he do? He slogs through the field to the road. Now, as he's walking through the field, his boots are staying just as muddy. They're not getting any cleaner. Is he making any progress? You bet. He's getting closer to a place where he can clean off the boots and they'll stay clean. That's the specific parable. Do something positive. Create a positive context. And then you'll be able to scrape off the mud from the boots. Right? And that's, I think, part of what's going on here with Kaddish Burchatz. Sanctify and wash off in that order. Okay. Next page. Okay, I'm going to skip the first paragraph because that's relevant only when the Seder comes out comes out on Shabbos and it's not coming out on Shabbos this year. We start with the blessing on the wine. I will just point out that the verb in this blessing is present tense. 
as it is in almost all blessings, creates, not created, thereby hangs a, a, a very central, fundamental idea of Jewish theology, that God is creating the universe every moment. This is not deism. He didn't create the world and go on vacation and let it run by itself. He's creating everything that exists moment by moment, with the possible exception of the human soul. I'm not discussing that now. Anyway, present tense. Now, comes the blessing for the holiday. Blessed are you, Hashem, the King of the Universe, who has chosen us from all, I don't know why they translate nations. The word in Hebrew is really a people. Um, exalted us above all tongues, meaning languages, and sanctified us with his commandments. Now, first of all, notice the order. He chose us first. And then raised us above all languages and sanctified us with his commandments. The fact that he gave us the Hebrew language I'll explain in a minute what that means. And, and the mitzvot is, that's not what creates our chosenness. That's a reaction to our chosenness. Chosenness comes prior to that. The chosenness is a reason for elevating us above other languages and, and giving us the commandments. You have to understand what the chosenness is based on. Now let's analyze the pieces and then we'll go back and explain the order in some detail. What does it mean that he sanctified us with his commandments? What is it about our relationship with the commandments that sanctifies, sanctifies us? They were given by God. Okay, there's two things. Number one, the very fact that they were given, the very fact that we are commanded in them, before we do anything, the mere fact that God addressed us and said, you are to do ABC, that created a certain sanctity. Also, you get closer to God through doing the commandments. When you do them, when you perform a commandment, that creates a certain sanctity in the person. It's both the fact that He gave us them in the first place, commanded us to perform them, and secondly, in each commandment there's a potential to elevate the person when He performs it. Indeed, as many explain, had he not commanded it, it wouldn't have been possible to do it. The command creates its own conditions of fulfillment. The Spasemis explains Arash on this basis. In the Parshist Metzavim, God says, the Torah is very close to you. It's not across the sea. It's not in the heavens to say, who could go up to the heavens to get it? It's not across the sea to say who's going to cross the sea to get it. It's very close to you within your heart and your mouth to do it. Rashi says, it's not above the heavens to say who should go up and get it for us. Says Rashi, because had it been there, you would have had to go up and get it. It's not across the sea to say who should go across the sea to get it for us. Because had it been across the sea, you would have had to go across the sea to get it. That's what Rashi says. Says the Sfasemis, 
great Hasidic commentators. What in the heavens? What do you mean? You have to be able. To, you have to go up and get it. How would you be able to go and get it and go to the heavens? What, what kind of project would that be? So the Shachem is, if it were commanded and you had to do it, then you'd have been able to go to heaven to get it. The command creates its own conditions of fulfillment. The very fact that you command it enables you to be able to fulfill. So the command itself infuses the Jewish people with a certain sanctity. That sanctity becomes the bedrock of capabilities which we use to be able to perform the commandments. To perform the commandments, we add to that sanctity even more. Okay? That's what it means to say he sanctifies the commandments. Why are some commandments easier than others, i.e., thou thou shalt not murder? For me, that's easy. I have no desire to. But some other things are more difficult. I have to be more uh, assertive in myself. Okay, the short answer to this is that it's going to vary from person to person. It's going to vary from person to person. I know someone who fought in the 1973 war under a very famous general. And he told me that they had captured a group of Arabs and they were lying face down with their hands behind their backs on the ground. And the commanding officer came by and said, what are they doing there? And this soldier said, sir, this Israeli army, he didn't say sir, he said, you can see for yourself they're lying out there. He said, shoot them. We don't take prisoners. So they shot them all. <coughs> Under those conditions, it would be very hard not to commit murder. If that's murder, the person who's defenseless usually would be considered some kind of murder. Right? Even if he wants to kill you and was trying to kill you, but now he's defenseless. And the commanding officer says, shoot them. So it's going to vary from person to person and situation to situation. What God needs is that all the different possible temptations are faced somewhere in some way so that they can all be overcome. So you have your job to face the ones that are hard for you and other people have their job to face right. the ones that are hard for them. Here is it. <laughs> I was told this. But anyway, that's what happened. Okay. Now, what about it? What does it mean he raised us above all tongues? <sighs> Languages, in general, are conventional. There is no reason why the sound table should be associated with this piece of furniture. Or the sound star should be associated with that thing in the heavens that shines. Hebrew is not a conventional language. Hebrew is a language that describes reality literally. The word describes the reality and only that word will do and no other word in Hebrew would do. It's not a conventional language. It's not made up. It's not just because people have agreed to use that sound, that that spelling for that reality that it stands for. I don't say that God brought to Adam all the animals. I mean, the Torah says, what does it The Torah says, God brought to Adam all the animals to see what name he would call them. Adam wasn't just making them up. Let's call this flu. Let's call that blow. Let's call that grunt. <laughs> no, he was analyzing the reality of the animal and using the Hebrew language to discern what its reality is. Therefore, he who speaks Hebrew he who possesses Hebrew 
possesses a, 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 a way to understand the world as it really is. The very words in Hebrew describe the world in a literal way as against the words in any other language. That's why it's extremely important to learn Hebrew, and even if you don't learn to speak Hebrew, since you come to think in Hebrew, which is definitely worthwhile, um, when you go through our texts, which are in Hebrew, to understand what the Hebrew words mean. The dictionaries are full of mistakes. The dictionaries are full of mistakes. You can't trust the dictionary. And you even can't trust a casual person whom you stop in the street and say, uh, I don't know if you... The Encarta um, encyclopedia on the, on the net has in each language a native speaker who recites a expression on a language and tells you what it means. So you can hear how it sounds. You go to the Israel section and you hear a native speaker saying, Mi shetarach b'shabbat yochal b'shabbat. Which means, he who worked on the Sabbath will eat on the Sabbath. The poor Israeli. They picked him off the street and he was trying to remember what he learned in third grade and he just left out one word. That's not what the phrase says. The phrase says, Misha Tarach Be'er Shabbat. Yochalba Shabbat. He who worked on Friday will eat on Shabbos. And he who worked on Shabbos will eat on Shabbos. It's insane. Okay? But they just picked somebody off the street and said, Say something in Hebrew. So he said something in Hebrew. Could have been anti Semitic as well. Maybe. I don't know that. But I'm inclined to think that they probably got it wrong in Hindu and they probably got it wrong in Urdu and they probably got it wrong in, in, in Swahili and they probably got it wrong in other languages also. Who, who did they pick? Who did they ask? So, you, you can't trust the, the dictionaries at all. Nachal, in most dictionaries, means river. Yes, and it says that the servant of, of Isaac dug in the Nachal and found water. Now, you're not going to tell me that they dug in the river and found water, are you? I don't think you're going to believe that. No, that's not what Nachal means. Nachal means a wadi, which is a river bed, which has water maybe three weeks out of the year when there are rains in the, in the hills. As a thought, doesn't have water. Now, the dictionary says, says Nachal means river. It's just wrong. What is a mabul? Blood. Wrong. That's why you read the mabul. Hayo, mayim. Al pnei the mapul was water all over the all over the earth, and the reader in English says the flood was water all over the earth. Thank you very much. This is a book of wisdom. Everybody knows what a flood is. That's because the word mapul doesn't mean flood. The word mapul means destructive force. Mapul is not related to water or seas. Linguistically, it means destructive force. It's a very widespread destructive force. What kind of destructive force was it? Water all over the earth. So the Understanding now the, the last one I'm going to tell you because it's, it's extremely important for understanding. Shalom. What does shalom mean? Okay, you know already. Already, that's 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 the wrong answer. In English, you can say the graveyard is very peaceful. That's appropriate in English because in English, peace is a negative concept. It's merely the absence of disturbance, the absence of conflict. <laughs> Death is very peaceful in English cannot say that the graveyard in Hebrew is a place of shalom. Shalom comes from a, a, root, a root, shalom, which means complete. It means integrating various things for a cooperative completeness. That does not characterize a, a, a graveyard. So you have to be very, very careful. He raised us above all languages by communicating to us in Hebrew and giving us Hebrew as a language to speak and thereby enabled us to be in touch with 
the, the three hours. There's much deeper materials here. I'm not going to I'm just letting you know this on, on the surface. Okay. So he raised us above languages and he sanctifies by the commandments in both ways. And this was a result of choosing us. Choosing us. He chose us for those things. So the choosing, the choosing, as you probably know, goes back to the patriarchs. Is because of what the patriarchs did that they were chosen for this position in the world. This position of speaking and understanding the reality as it is and being sanctified by the commandments. Alright, I will take you one level deeper because otherwise this idea is going to be incomplete. Does God have an ayin? Does God have an ozen? Does God have a yad? Does God have a zroa? Does God have a regal? You are trained to say, no, of course not. That's the anthropomorphic. How could God have an eye? An eye. How could God have a, a nose and an ear? How could God have a, a yacht and a, a hand? How could God have a regular? How could God have a, have a leg? No, that's just poetic. It's metaphor. We're just borrowing language so it's able to describe God. But of course, God doesn't have any of those features. That turns out to be wrong. That turns out to be wrong. God literally has Ayin and Ozen and Yat and Regal. Now let's see if you can make the jump. If I tell you that God literally has Ayin and Ozen and Yat and Regal, what must you conclude? That we don't. Good. No, not that he has a body. What you conclude is that Ayin doesn't mean this and Ozen doesn't mean this. And Yad doesn't mean this. And Regal doesn't mean that. The words don't mean what you think they mean. The words refer to him. And they're borrowed in reflection to us. The borrowing goes in the opposite direction. The ultimate reality is what we call Elokus. It's divinity. The ultimate reality is divinity. And Hebrew is the language of truth. It describes divinity. And then we borrow it. Well, the Torah borrows it to describe our physical world. So, to give you a, a rough, a rough description, the word ayin in Hebrew would refer to God's power of instant, comprehensive, accurate knowledge of everything. He knows everything. Instant, accurate, comprehensive, even effortless knowledge. That's what ayin refers to literally. Okay, instant, effortless, comprehensive knowledge. What abilities does a human being have that's similar to that? Of all the human abilities, which one is more like, most like that? Sight. You open your eyes, you see all around you, you know what's going on instantly, effortlessly. Yeah, knowledge is usually accurate. Right? So if I'm borrowing the word ayin from the quality of divine providence that describes instant, <coughs> comprehensive, accurate knowledge... So the human ability that's relevant to it is sight. God acts in the world and his actions are um, accurate, precise, um, focused. What ability, what 
aspect of human being gives him the power of acting in an accurate, precise, controlled fashion. To him. So Yah refers to God's ability to look at the human being. Well, you don't do that with your foot. You don't do it with your, with your earlobe. You don't do it with your hair. But with your hands. You act in a precise, focused, and controlled manner. So Yah is borrowed from that term which describes divine providence and is used for the flesh and blood, five-fingered appendages, and so forth and so on. The language really describes divinity and is borrowed to describe us. And that is a principle altogether. That the universe starts with the divine. We are an outgrowth of divine in some respect whatsoever, whatever that means. And things have to be understood top down, not bottom up. Okay. And you, Hashem, our God, has given us in love Mo'adim Simcha, Mo'ad, not bad. Appointed time is not bad. That's another conversation we'll talk about. Chagim, feast. Well, we'll see. Zmani means times. But joy, gladness, and joy. Each one of these words has to be analyzed. Mo'ed. Mo'ed can mean at a point in time, but Mo'ed also means meeting. Ohel Mo'ed didn't mean the appointed tent, the one with the flag. Ohel Mo'ed meant the tent where God met most. A Mo'ed, a Ba'ad, is a, is a um, committee. So, Mo'adim are times designated for meeting. All of the holidays are supposed to affect a meeting between God and the Jewish people. <coughs> Some of you know three out of the holidays are, fe- are pilgrimage festivals. So you have to go to Jerusalem and present yourself in the temple. There the meeting is pretty literal. What about Rosh Hashanah and Kippur? So the Pizzadik explains <coughs> Rosh Hashanah you blow the shofar. And in halach, in law, blowing the shofar is a position equivalent to being in the Holy of Holies. That's how the Talmud derives that you don't gild the shofar with gold. Just like the high priest, when he went to the Holy of Holies, took off his golden garments and went in only with his linen garments. Because you can't do service in the Holy of Holies with gold, whatever the reason for that is. So blowing the shofars can lie inside of the team dummy universe. It's like being in the Holy of Holies. Therefore you can't go to the gold. So when you blow the shofar in Tiberia, in Beersheba, dare I say in New York. Okay, we'll say in New York. In New York, Johannesburg, it's as if you're standing in the Holy of Holies. That means you're meeting with God when you blow the shofar. Yom Kippur, there's a famous verse. Lifnei, Hashem Titharu. Purify yourselves before Hashem. When you do Tshuva and Kippur, when you're purifying yourself, you qualify as Lifnei Hashem. Lifnei Hashem Titharu. So there's a meeting in Yom Kippur as well. Pritzadi goes further and says that it applies even on Shabbos. Because in the Parsha Moadim, in, in, um, 
in Emma. Um, it says, Elam Ode Hashem, and it starts with Shabbos. And there he quotes the verse, Shabbos Yibuchom Hashosechem. It's Shabbos in all of your, your dwelling places. And the Pritzayit says, the difference between the holidays and Shabbos is this. Both are meeting times, but the difference is who goes to who. On the holidays, we go to God, and on Shabbos, He comes to us. Shabbos Bechol Moshosechem, wherever you are, wherever you are, Shabbos comes to you. On the holidays, the big pilgrimage holidays, you have to physically go to Jerusalem, to the temple. I'm going to show you, you blow the shofar, and you give me the tshuva. You're doing it. Shabbos, it comes to you. So, oh, that's Moed. Moed is the time of meeting. Now, it says, Moadim Simcha, Moadim for Simcha, Chagim and Zmanim for Sosom. Alright, let me explain what Chagim and Zmanim are, and then we'll talk about the difference between Simcha and Sosom. There's a fundamental difference between the two of them. Chag literally means bringing the sacrifice in the temple in, in celebration of the holiday. Lachvot means to come to the temple and offer the sacrifice. Of course, you eat part of that sacrifice, so it is... Um, that's why I think they say feasts. But the idea is that coming to the, ho- to the, to the temple on the holiday is a joyous occasion. And it's celebrated by sacrificing an animal and feasting. Zman time means that time is not uniform. Let the scientists stand on their heads. Time is not uniform. And as the calendar goes through, the quality of time changes. Shabbos is different from the other six days of the week. And the 15th of Nisan is not like the 14th or the 16th of Nisan. Each holiday has a time, and that time is special. You see this in the mitzvot, Jewish practice. Usually, almost always, we celebrate a holiday by repeating what happened on the first occasion of that holiday. We have a Seder night of Pesach, because in Egypt they had a Seder. They ate matzah. We should be offering a sacrifice, eating the, the meat and the, the morrow as well. If we had the temple, we'd be doing that. We're doing what they did. Why did we celebrate Purim the way we did? However, we did last week. <laughs> because that's the way they did. They celebrated it that first year, and we're doing the same thing. Hanukkah, they lit the light, the, the menorah, and it burned. We light menorahs. We do what they did. Why should it be that way? Why should we do what they did? Fourth of July in America, nobody goes out into the woods in Wildcourt. There are these history books, you know, who go out to the woods actually fight a mock battle. But the best they are having cookouts and you know, speed voting and that's doing what. What is the relevance of doing it over again? So you could say it's a different way to preserve the memory. I think that's correct. But on a much deeper level, the fact that they did what they did at that time on that date means that that date has a certain potentiality that is realized by that activity. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it at that time. They did it because God commanded it. So we, knowing that the calendar is really a spiral, it's a spiral, 
come back each year to the same place in the circular dimension of the, of the spiral. Of course, the spiral has a forward dimension as well. Well, linear dimension as well. It has the same potentiality. That's why we do the same things again. So that's why Zvani is very important. The date is not, not an accident. And you don't change the date of the Passover celebration to make a long holiday. Right? Like you change the American holidays to make, make a, long, a long weekend. So a long weekend. You don't do that. Right? If, it's, if it's Wednesday, right in the middle of your week, too bad. That Wednesday is when that Kiddushin, that particular sanctity at the time is, is, is possessed. Now, Simchan Sasson, the God of Vilna makes a fundamental distinction between Simchan Sasson. Simcha is something you prepare for. You know it's coming and you make preparations. And the rejoicing that you have is a result of the preparations that you make. You reap your efforts. You reap the, the, the results of your effort. Sasson refers to unexpected joy, unanticipated, unplanned, and certainly without preparation and creation. Sas says the verse in Psalms, I rejoice on your words, on your speech, your saying, like someone who finds a great treasure. Sas, the word there is sas, from Sasson. Person who finds a great treasure. To find it, typically you're not looking for it, you stumble over it. He didn't expect it. That's sus. Sussum. So, on the one hand, it's a, a meeting time, a moed. A moed is something you plan for, something you prepare for, something you elevate yourself for. You have to purify yourself to be able to go into the temple. You can't clean up your stomach. So you have to prepare for that. So that it takes weeks of preparation, depending upon your condition, where you are. That generates simple. The... Chag and the Zman carry elements of Sasson. You have to be aware, you have to be sensitive to the unexpected. Not just what you prepared, what you planned, but sensitive to the unexpected as well, which will generate elements of joy on the holiday. So you said Chag was bringing... It's called the Korban Chagiga. Isn't that planned? Okay, that's why I, that's why I shifted my vocabulary a little bit. It is planned, but together with what you planned for, there are also unexpected elements. Okay, I'll tell you what I, I suppressed. Uh, when you get married, so the, uh, the blessing that spoke about what happens in marriage, that's as both, right? Well, when you get married, you prepare. You definitely prepare. And you investigate and you, right? And then there are the surprises. Right. <laughs> some, of the, some of the surprises are also delightful. Right? And, and the things you didn't know about, you couldn't anticipate. Right? Okay. So even when you're preparing, there's, there's an element that you have to be, have to be aware of. Okay, now comes something really very, very special. Chagamatos. Festival of Matos. Gee, Chagamatos? You don't call it that. Colloquially, you call it the upcoming holiday, what do you say? Pesach. Pesach. We call it Pesach. Pesach is entirely missing from the Tanakh. Nowhere in the entire Tanakh is this holiday called Pesach. Nowhere. We made it up. We made it up. The word Pesach 
occurs in the Tanakh quite a number of times. When the word Pesach refers to a day, a calendar day, does anybody know which calendar day it refers to? Say again? No, good try. Yes, the 14th of Nisan. Why the 14th of Nisan? That's where it happened. Because that's when you that's when you bring the Paschal sacrifice. So the day is called by the name of the sacrifice that's uh, that's brought on it, but it's never used in the 15th of Nisan. We call it that. Gosh, are we satisfied with the Torah's designation? What's the matter with us? Let's see, Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, beginning of the year. Nowhere in the entire Tanakh does that phrase occur. Ever. What is it called in the Torah? Rosh Hashanah? Yom Shuah. Oh, another fellow knows something. The day of the Shofar blast. Hmm. Are you beginning to feel a bit of a pattern here? Hagamatsos refers to our mitzvah. We eat matzah. Pesach refers to the fact that God passed over our houses, although that's not that's the best translation, but I'll, I'll just mention that for now. We'll get there in the question. So, the term the Torah uses refers to our mitzvah. The term we use refers to what God did. Rosh Hashanah. The word Rosh Hashanah means the beginning of the year. It's the beginning of the creation. That's our name for it. Our name is like what he did. What does he call it? Yom Shuah. The day of the chauffeur blast. That's what we do. Now I want to show you the source of this. Take the blue books. I'm telling you now as a conditious lady. The great, great early Hasidic commentators. Page 903. Oh, um, uh, 31. Um, in, in now watch carefully. Chapter 31, bottom of the page. Hashem spoke to Moses saying, Take vengeance for the children of Israel against the Midianites. Afterwards you'll be gathered into your people. Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm men from among yourselves for the legion that they may be against Midian to inflict Hashem's vengeance against Midian. You see what's going on here? Whose vengeance is it? Hey, what does it say in verse one? Whose vengeance is it? And who's talking in verse one? God, right? One well, suits they got it right. <laughs> he says that that must be the reality. So why does Moses in verse two say something different? Moses says that the it's God's vengeance. Says the Jewish lady, what you see here is typical of a love relationship. That each sees reality through the eyes of the other. God says, what does this mean to the Jewish people? They suffered through the 
actions of the Midianites and they were injured thereby, they have to get their vengeance. The Jewish people say God's reputation of the world was, was, was damaged. His will was violated. That's to be God's vengeance. Each sees it through the eyes of the other. Says to this lady, that's what the names of the holidays reflect as well. Each one is seen through the eyes of the other. Okay, back to work. You see, he's going on the surface. <laughs> Take it away. Zaman Khayrusain, the time of our freedom. Anybody here know any, any modern Hebrew? There's a word for, for being free in modern Hebrew. It's actually Sinan. found in Huh? Oh, that's when you pay, pay for something. You don't pay for something. Chofesh. 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 The right of free speech and so forth and so on. Right? That verb is, that is used in the Torah, but not here. But not here. What's the difference? And I'll say, Cheirut is the same letters as the word for engraved. Harus in Hebrew means engraved. And I'll say here that freedom from our point of view is for the sake of receiving the tablets <coughs> on which were engraved the pronouncements of Sinai. Cheirus means Harus of the can you say that again? Yes. Cherus means freedom. Chorus, which is the same letter, means engraved. <coughs> and I'll say that this word is chosen here for the for freedom, not Chofesh. Chofesh is a different association in Tanakh. Cherus um, is used because it refers to, or it, I should say, refers to strong. It uh, is associated with the tablets that they received at Sinai in which the words were engraved. Right? This freedom is an engraved freedom. Where is the freedom engraved? It's engraved on those tablets. It means that Pesach inherently looks forward to Shavuos. The holiday of Shavuos, which is the anniversary of receiving the third at Sinai. Pesach inherently looks forward to Shavuos. You all know this. Most, or almost, mo- most of you know this. What mitzvah tells you that Pesach inherently looks forward to Shavuos? The mitzvah of counting the 49 days between Pesach and Shavuos. Indeed, Shavuos has no calendar date. It has no calendar date. Because the month in between could be 30-day months or 29-day months. See, there's three possibilities. It could be the 5th, the 6th, or the 7th of Sivan. And when we establish the month with the basin, with the, with the court in Jerusalem, it varied from year to year. It has no calendar date. It's fixed by the beginning of Pesach. Pesach inherently looks forward to Shavuos. And this lies the whole philosophy. One evening before uh, the end of the month, I will talk about the value of freedom. We'll talk about this in detail, philosophically. But here you have it. When you say those words, you have a double thought in mind. There's a time of freedom now, and that freedom is for the sake of what's going to happen in 50 days, when we receive the Torah uh, at Sinai, or have the anniversary of receiving the Torah at Sinai. Okay, that's 
the first. <laughs> Somebody's gonna.